Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, But What Do You Think? It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 23rd, 2020. Who do you say Jesus is? Don't answer the question quickly. Take your time. As Christians, we're tempted to fall back on religious language we've inherited when we're asked about our faith lives language we know so well we could recite it in our sleep. Else, we're tempted not to answer the question at all. We dodge and evade and perseverate, afraid of offending anyone whose perspective differs from ours. So, wait a while. Let the question linger. Who do you say Jesus is? In one of his famous letters to a young poet, writer Rainer Maria Rilke encouraged his protege to sit with what he doesn't know and trust that the questions themselves have great value. Be patient, he wrote, toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus invites his disciples to live a question. Who do you say that I am? He asks them as they make their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Who am I? Where do I stand in this life we're making together? What do I mean to you? Perhaps you object already. Perhaps you're thinking, no, that's not the kind of question Rilke was talking about in his letters. Jesus' question is not a question to live with, it's a question to answer. It's a creed question, a heart-of-our-faith question, requiring absolute certainty and conviction. Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, our King. There's nothing unsolved about Jesus. The Son of God isn't a murder mystery. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, yes, he is. And yet, if this week's Gospel reading has anything to say about it, we are still meant to live the question of who Jesus is, day by day and hour by hour. We're not meant to solve God once and for all. As odd as this might sound, we're not meant to land when it comes to theology, to arrive and hunker down. We are meant to journey. As Matthew tells the story, Jesus, being an excellent teacher, prefaces his zinger question with an easier one. Who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street? What have you heard? What do the opinion polls suggest? I don't know about you, but I can just about hear the schoolboy relief in the disciples' voices. Ooh, ooh, this is an easy one. I know this one. As they scramble to answer Jesus' question. People say you're John the Baptist. No, 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 they say you're Elijah. Actually, some folks think you're Jeremiah. Yes, but others say you're one of the prophets. I'm guessing they go on for a while, each disciple trying to drown the others out with a more succinct, authoritative, and promising answer. Not coincidentally, the answers the disciples come up with are based entirely on the religious factions they're partial to. To put this in contemporary terms, imagine them answering Jesus' question this way. Here's a Lutheran take on who you are. Oh, and here's a Calvinist one. Of course, the Anglicans say... No, wait, let's hear what the evangelicals think. And the Catholics, 
What about the Pentecostals or the Methodists or the Emerging Church? They have opinions too. Interestingly, Jesus neither affirms nor denies any of the disciples' answers. He simply listens, allowing his friends to offer up everything they think they know based on other people's preferences, ideas, and expert opinions. As if to say, this is an okay place to begin. This is where all explorations of faith begin, in naming what we've heard, examining what we've inherited, and parroting back the certainties others have handed to us. These answers cost us little. They're safe and benign. They hearken back to history and tradition, and that's lovely. But there's no intimacy in them. No personal stakes, no investment, no fire. Naming what we've heard from others, repeating what we've inherited from our parents or pastors or peers, these are useful ways to start our explorations. But we cannot build our faith lives on hearsay alone. At some point, the question of who Jesus is must become personal. So Jesus presses on. But who do you say that I am? Looking at each disciple in turn, he awaits a more intimate answer. Meaning, forget about other people's theologies and interpretations. Put aside tradition and creed, valuable as they are, and consider the life we have lived together, together thus far. The bread we've broken, the miles we've walked, the burdens we've carried, the tears we've shed, the laughter we've shared. Who am I to you? How have you experienced me? Matthew doesn't give us much detail about this scene, but when I imagine what happens next, I see the disciples falling into an awkward silence. I imagine them avoiding eye contact with Jesus, shuffling their feet, coughing, casting anxious glances at each other. I imagine every single one of them desperately hoping that someone else will answer first. And I imagine Jesus standing patiently and vulnerably in their midst to that long silence, waiting to hear what his closest friends will say about him. Do they know him? Have they learned to trust his heart and his words? How much have they comprehended of his mission and vision? And how much are they willing to confess out loud? Do they love him enough to make a claim, to take a risk, to speak truths that might cost them? Cue Peter. Bold, reckless, earnest, impetuous Peter, when the silence becomes unbearable, he throws himself forward and answers the question as confidently as he can. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. A perfect A-plus answer, the whole gospel story in a nutshell, the truth with a capital T. Right? Well, sort of. In this week's gospel account, yes, Jesus commends and blesses Peter for his answer. Jesus declares that he will build his church upon the rock of Peter's bold testimony. And he promises Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. All of this is true and powerful and worth celebrating. But it's not the end of the story. We know from other gospel accounts that when Jesus goes on to describe the suffering and humiliation his messiahship must include, Peter quickly backtracks, pulls Jesus aside, and tells him to shut up. Such morbid talk is not worthy of a real messiah. Peter's insistence that Jesus fit into his watered-down comprehension of divinity hits a nerve so raw, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter with words that shock us still, 2,000 years later. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. As strange and stinging as this exchange is, I like what it teaches us about living the questions of faith. 
I like that Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, signals the beginning of his exploration of Jesus' identity, not its end. As soon as Peter thinks he has the answer to the question nailed down, Jesus shuts him up. Jesus challenges what he knows and nudges him back to the starting line. Yes, I am the Messiah, but no, you have no idea what Messiah means. In fact, you're not even ready to know what Messiah means. You can barely tolerate my talking about it. There's so much more for you to learn, Peter. So many more answers for you to grow into. Be patient. Don't force the locked doors. Try to love what is unsolved. Keep living the question. When I think about the whole of Peter's life, all the biographical details that we 21st century Christians have the privilege to know and ponder, I'm stunned by the answers that Peter must have lived into as time went on. Answers he never could have articulated in the early years of discipleship. Who do you say that I am? You are the one who found me in a fishing boat and gave me a new vocation. You're the one who healed my mother-in-law. You're the one who said, yes, walk on water. You're the one who caught me before I drowned. You're the one who glowed on a mountaintop while I babbled nonsense. You're the one who washed my feet while I squirmed in shame. You're the one who told me, accurately, that I would be a coward on the very night you needed me to be brave. You're the one I denied three times to save my skin. You're the one who looked into my eyes with pain and pity when the cock crowed. You're the one who fed me breakfast on a beach and spoke love and fresh purpose into my humiliation. You're the one who gave me the courage to preach to 3,000 people on Pentecost. You're the one who taught me that I must not call unclean what you have pronounced clean. You're the one who stayed by my side through insults, beatings, and imprisonments. You are the one I followed into martyrdom. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who has he been to you in the past? Who is he now? Who do you hope he will be? in the future? These are questions to ponder for a lifetime, questions that have so many others folded into them will never exhaust the possibilities. What stories of Jesus have you inherited? What truths about him do you need to say goodbye to? What religious assumptions are you clinging to simply because they're familiar or safe or easy? Why are you afraid at times to answer the question at all? Why does it fill you with shame? Is Jesus merely the Messiah, or is he yours? What Peter learned in this encounter is that Jesus is just as powerfully present in the questions as he is in the answers, maybe even more so. To love what is unsolved is not to deny Jesus his lordship. It is to allow Jesus to enter more deeply into your heart than any impersonal claim about him will ever do. Live the question. That is Jesus' invitation, and he makes it over and over again to each one of us in love. For books this week, Dan reviews Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. It's been 10 years since Isabel Wilkerson published her award-winning book, The Warmth of Other Sons, about America's Great Migration. Between 1915 and 1970, six million blacks migrated from the South to the American North and West. When the migration began, about 90% of blacks lived in the South. Sixty years later, only 50% of them did. 
The black population in Chicago swelled from 44,000 to over a million. Detroit's skyrocketed from 1.4% to 44%. Wilkerson humanizes history by telling the stories of three individual migrants who represent the three main paths the blacks took out of the South, up the Atlantic seaboard to the Northeast, up the spine of the country to the cities of the Midwest, and then west, mainly to California. These people were fleeing what Wilkerson called in, a, in warmth a feudal caste system. At the beginning of her new book, Caste, she recalls her epiphany upon realizing that in warmth she was actually not writing about geography and relocation, but about the American caste system. The jarring notion of caste now receives her book-length treatment, which the New York Times called an instant classic, even before it was released. Throughout human history, says Wilkerson, there have been three caste systems that have stood out, Nazi Germany, India, and the United States, where race is the primary tool and the visible decoy, the front man for caste. Our American caste system began with the first slaves from Africa who were brought here in 1619, which means the slavery and its dreadful consequences have been with us for 246 years, whereas it's been only 155 years since its putative end with the Civil War in 1865. So the caste system hasn't been an exception, an aberration, or a passing chapter of American history. It has been the socioeconomic foundation upon which the country has been built. Wilkerson admits that readers might be surprised with her comparisons to Nazi Germany and India, and that the notion of caste is not a term we usually apply to America. She is careful to draw both comparisons and contrasts, and also notes the interplay of race, class, and caste. Nevertheless, she identifies eight pillars of caste that are disturbingly present in all three countries. In contemporary parlance, our 246 years of slavery were nothing less than a carefully crafted and comprehensive system of state-sponsored terror and torture that the Geneva Conventions would have banned as war crimes. The Nazis, in fact, carefully studied American racism when it crafted its own caste system. And if you follow Wilkerson's footnotes, you learn that there's a substantial literature that compares the Indian and American caste systems. In her epilogue, Wilkerson deflects criticisms that she has not offered any solutions. The goal of this work has not been to solve all of the problems of a millennia-old phenomenon, but to cast a light onto its history, its consequences, and its presence in our everyday lives, and to express hope for its resolution. Such hopes begin with a radical empathy that is based upon education and awareness, and that insists upon the common humanity of all people. For films this week, Dan reviews Franz Jägerstetter, A Man of Conscience. This simple 24-minute documentary tells the improbable story of one of the most courageous Christians that you've never heard of, a peasant farmer from Austria with an 8th grade education. Franz Jägerstetter was born out of wedlock in a small village near Salzburg. His mother was a maid, and his father was a farmer. After his father was killed in World War I, and his mother remarried in 1917, Jägerstetter took the last name of his stepfather. Like many people of that time and place, he lived a hard life as a miner, a farmer, and, if legend is right, a hellraiser. But his life changed dramatically when, on Maundy Thursday in 1936, he married a devout Catholic woman named Francisca Schwaninger. Under her influence, the couple made a pilgrimage to Rome. Jägerstetter began to study the Bible and the lives of Christian saints. He became the sacristan of his local church, and they had three daughters. In 1938, German troops entered his village of Radegund. 
In April of that year, Jägerstetter was the only person in Radegund to vote against Hitler's annexation of Austria. He openly protested the Nazis. After four deferrals for military service, on June 17, 1940, Jägerstetter was conscripted into the German army. But he refused to take the oath to Hitler, despite pressure from his fellow villagers and the church bureaucrats to obey the orders and get in line. Jägerstetter was arrested and imprisoned as a conscientious objector on March 1, 1943, despite his willingness to serve as a medic. He was accused of undermining the military morale and sentenced to death in a military trial. On August 9th, Jägerstetter was executed by guillotine at the age of 36. And lastly, for poetry this week, The Opening of Eyes by David White. That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 23rd, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.